So tonight's talk is on how being aware of our body can actually have profound psychological implications and heal actually the way we uh, interact with other people, the quality of our relationships. It's a dominant theme throughout the Dharma that body awareness is something that comes about before any other sustained inquiry. It's called in early Buddhism, Kayagatasati, which means literally staying mindful of the sensations of our body. And the Buddha again and again put Kayagatasati before any other form of uh, awareness, such as being aware of feelings, awareness of moods, emotions, awareness of thoughts. Before we go there, he always placed the emphasis on starting out with what's going on in the body. And it's kind of interesting because very few of us, when faced with a real conundrum in our lives, where we're faced with a big choice, or we're in a dramatic situation, or we are under a lot of stress and agitation, or where we feel overwhelmed, very few of us believe that, well, I should drop everything and check in with my body. It sounds interesting and good, but uh, very often it's the last thing. And our culture, which tends to prioritize, of course, thinking, planning, intellectualizing, strategizing, and we tend to live our lives in a disembodied way, looking at cell phones, laptops, etc. So there's this tendency to try to figure out or engage immediately with an audiovisual device when the shit hits the fan. So the Buddha in the Kayagatasati says, friends, he starts out almost all of his teachings by saying, friends, it's wonderful how sustained awareness of the body is of profound benefit. However the body is presently disposed, know it. Put aside memories and ideas and settle your attention inwardly and stay fully aware of your body when it's moving, when it's looking here, there, when you're working, eating, drinking, chewing, digesting, urinating, defecating, when you're walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, when you're conversing, you get the idea. I think he wants you to do it all the time. So he concludes by saying, always sustain awareness of the body, the sensations. In Western language, we call it interoception, which is not a visual awareness of how the body is, but how the body literally feels when you close your eyes and you know your body, not by any images or any concepts, but by the actual sensations that are occurring right in this moment. That's what he's talking about when he talks about body awareness. So why does the Buddha say we have to start always with the body? Well, interestingly enough, there's another concept called Nama Rupa, which is pretty important in the Buddha's Dharma. The Nama Rupa is something he says develops right after we, dis we get or attain consciousness in life. 
really, really early on. And Nama Rupa literally could be translated as thought, mind, body, mind, body, kind of, but really what it means is the core psychobiology of our personality. And it's even, if you look at it even closer, it's this way we are in our bodies that we carry through our lives that creates actually a lot of um, underlying patterns and changes the way we relate to people and informs when we're confident and when we're not. Just the way our body is transforms so much. We'll talk about that in a little while. Basically, if we look at this from uh, a Western perspective, what trying to understand what the Buddha is getting across here, we now know that in the very earliest relationships in life, when we were infants and we were inact- interacting with our caregivers, there were dominant patterns in our relationships, and those patterns shaped the way we literally held our bodies, the way we moved, the way we interacted physically around important people. So if you grew up in a reliably loving, welcoming, mirroring situation, which I'm going to guess the large bulk of you didn't because for some reason Buddhist centers like 12-step and others, we get a lot of people who come from the insecure attachment category, but if you did, congratulations, that's great. If you did grow up in a loving, welcoming, mirroring environment where you felt that there was reliable connection that wasn't shaming, that wasn't rejecting, where people would welcome your entire breadth and width of emotions without any uh, blanching or turning away, then you as a child would have developed a very physically relaxed, open posture. You would have been very comfortable in your body. And you would develop what child psychologists call proximity-seeking actions. When you were with people, you would lean into. You would make eye contact. You would develop very soft, subtle gestures that would announce that you were ready to connect. Your body would be open, relaxed, comfortable, but you would lean into interactions. If, on the other hand, you got unreliable connection, where sometimes there was love and acceptance, but other key times the caregiver turned away, wasn't available, wasn't capable of being empathetic or kind, was overwhelmed themselves, where there was a divorce in the family or a separation, very often then the child develops an anxious clinging to the caregiver. And the body develops not this relaxed proximity-seeking, but it instead has this clinging, tight, anxious, vigilant, always monitoring the caregiver, expecting abandonment and somebody to disappear and go away or no longer to be loving and kind. So a kind of uh, sustained anxiousness 
preoccupation is developed. And there's a body to that. It's far more tense in the shoulders. The child is far more likely still to be looking at the parent, but now the, the looking is not relaxed. The body's not relaxed. The body is kind of tight. If you grew up in a family structure that was engulfing, then where one caregiver was dominant with their emotions, was in limiting your freedom, was too directive in how you should act, was very, very uh, in, overly involved in your life, or perhaps a caregiver who was very depressed and not available at all. Uh, then you might develop impulses that were very impatient to leave, to disengage, to disconnect, to get out of there. Once your needs for getting food from your parents were met, your first impulse would be, I'm getting the hell out of here. And with my father, I have that. I had that because he was a drunk. And dinners at the table were really, really uncomfortable affairs verging on abusive. So a lot of my impulses were to fidget, jump, be uncomfortable, try to get away. And then finally, if you grew up in a downright abusive family system where there was physical violence enacted upon you, sexual violence, where there was a sudden uh, death or disappearance in the family, then you might literally have uh, immobility, freeze, suddenly just losing track of time, being in a, uh, a kind of overwhelmed shock state that very often children get into when their caregivers are unsafe. The body that we developed in our childhood to interact with our parents, it just doesn't go away. We actually carry that body with us into schoolyards, and we actually begin to literally stay and develop those body patterns as we move through life. And a lot of the people I work with in, in spiritual counseling, when they first come in, they'll be in their bodies really tight. They'll be, you know, the shoulders up here. I'll see that there's this hunched over... Uh, uh, looking at the ground, a anxious looking at me, wanting validation, which of course I give, but uh, this sort of anxious living on my every word. There's not this relaxed proximity, comfortable bodies very often. So a great psychologist, John Bowlby, said that these early experiences call, create what he called internal working models. And due to the work of scientists like Alan Shore, we now know that there are dedicated regions of the right hemisphere of our brain that store these early experiences and don't forget them. And actually, those early experiences with caregivers, whether we got love and acceptance, or unreliable uh, connection, or whether we got, we felt engulfed and had to leave as quickly as possible, or whether we felt literally overwhelmed in abusive situations and froze. Those expectations of how other people 
will react to us along with body states and impulses are stored in key parts of the brain, the right orbital frontal and the a part of the brain that's just unpronounceable. It's, I'll, give you, I'll give it a shot. The periaqueductal gray. I know they shortened that to PAG because nobody in neuroscience can pronounce it either. either. But so these are the key thing to know about these areas is that they're pre-conscious. Before you even realize it, if you're in a situation in adult life where someone is in some way looking at you, speaking to you, or the situation is similar to a situation in childhood where you were no longer comfortable, where you felt judged, shamed, about to be abandoned, about to be abused, about to be criticized, then it will activate the PAG area of the brain, literally activates defensiveness in the body. And all of this happens before we have a single thought or decision. It's kind of automatic. So, if that sounds like, therefore, there's no hope, we're kind of stuck, it's not true. Actually, there are ways to adjust and address these patterns. But it's very worthwhile to note, for instance, if you grew up in a family system where, like I did, when you're interacting with certain macho, over-the-top men, like my father, I would sort of look away at times and look down and try to withdraw from the relationship. And so often when I would go into interactions with teachers, like Noah and different teachers I'd study with, I, because it was a power relationship, because it was a, a man who had more power than me, I would go back into that body uh, that defensive body. And so I was repeating the same exact desire to disconnect, to retreat, to be defensive, to get away. I felt all the impulses. And of course, the thing about it is that in adult life, the abuse wasn't going to happen. None of my teachers were going to suddenly shout, throw glasses at my head, storm out of you know the dinner table. It, it was... But because I was in automatically that body of I'm not safe, I'm not okay, that nama rupa, then my actions and my thoughts created those feelings of I'm not safe, I've got to get out of here. This is interesting. Most people believe that we act and our impulses are in accordance with the way that we think, but that's not true. Almost all of our impulses almost all of our feelings and emotions are pre the arrival of thought. They're faster than thought. They're the fast circuits of the brain. So what does precede our impulses and our emotions and our feelings, though, is the way we hold our body. That's sort of the basic canvas, the basic palette from which our actions and our thoughts are created. So... It's almost as if we have two different brains. We have one brain, left hemisphere, which is an interpreter, which tells stories about why we do the things we do. But that part is slow, and it's after the fact. And human beings believe that if we can just figure out and tell a good story or understand why 
we are the way we are, that suddenly our behaviors will change. But actually, the emotional brain, the right hemisphere, which is far more bottom-up, is far more powerful in our actions, our impulses, our feelings, our moods. And so if we want to change anything meaningful in our lives, it's not about reframing the way we tell our stories, which is nice and can help, but what's most important is first addressing from the bottom up the way we hold and bring the dramas from childhood each moment of our adult lives. How we actually have imported our childhood into our adult lives, not through the way we often think, not even necessarily through the way our, we, uh, what our a full range of emotions might be. First and foremost, we carry our childhoods into our adult life, our early disappointments, our early traumas, our early relationships, we carry all those woundings with us in the body. The, current, the common results of emotional wounds are, I'll give you some just generic broad strokes, we'll find social situations to be exhausting, physically exhausting, because when we're in social situations, we'll go into this state of either rigidity because our parents wouldn't allow us to be relaxed and spontaneous or early on in life we weren't allowed to just we felt we couldn't relax so in interpersonal social situations we get tight constricted and that's exhausting some of us will even feel the need to paste on a false self a smile all the time because that's what our family did when they were around, these sort of performative smiles or these expressions that weren't sincere. I know some yoga teachers that I feel must be exhausted after <laughs> their classes because they say, hi, it's so great to see you. And I never come in here in that mood. I'm never like, hi. <laughs> I, would, I would literally faint from exhaustion about 20 minutes into these talks. Creative opportunities will lead to procrastination. Very often, early on in life, if when we were spontaneous, we drew, we danced, we sang, if there was a warm reaction, then physically when there's a creative opportunity in life, we'll relax and embrace it. But if early on in school situations and peers with siblings, we were laughed at or ridiculed for creative expression, spontaneous creative expression, then as adults, when there's an opportunity for us to be creative, the body will tense, the stomach will tense, the throat will lock, the back of the neck will feel tight, and as a result, we'll avoid taking steps to become more creative and embrace opportunities in our life because the body is so tight, it's so constricted. We can, as adults, find any kind of disconnection, whether even an early relationship doesn't work out or uh, a friend moves away for six months. We can take it as an enormous weight coupled with this pain and constriction in the chest. And that's, of course, because early on in life when we experienced a core abandonment we started to feel that way and we couldn't process it, so we remained stuck in that. Finally, there's 
the sudden anxiety that certain and urges to move that certain people can have in totally relaxing situations. I was talking about yoga. Um, I've met over the years and uh, fellow yoga practitioners people who find it actually torturous to do savasana, which is the pose where you're just lying on the ground, immobile, and that's my favorite pose because I'm lazy as I'm lazy as fuck. I don't give a shit. But but many people will they that's the the pose they struggle with. They get tight. They feel the impulse to to move, to leave, to get up. They can't relax because as a child, whenever they got really comfortable and relaxed, that's when the criticism and the why aren't you doing more and why aren't you you know. What are you just lying around? Why aren't you cleaning your room started? So the only comfortable body is when the body is doing the, you know, the sort of cardio yoga. So I think I've made an explanation, or provided an explanation about why embodied awareness is so important because it's only through becoming aware that we become uh, knowledgeable of these patterns before they give birth to all the impulses and the thoughts that arise out of them. Unfortunately, most of us don't pay much attention to our sensate experience. We tend to still rely and rally around our thoughts when we're in any situation. We keep saying to ourselves, relax, be natural, (laughs) smile, laugh at jokes. What's the matter with me? Why am I just here saying nothing, not talking? Because, of course, we're in this. Princeton psychologist Alexander Todorov, who's a famous, famous uh, clinical psychologist, says that body language conveys far more information about a human, the human psychology than facial expression and words. Stanford scientists Balenson and Wan say that people who are aware of their nonverbal movements, cues, behaviors are far more capable of learning and far more capable of developing creative skills. Because if you're aware of the way you hold your body and the way your body gets tense and constricted, if you know that and if you begin to address those patterns, then you can move into situations that could cause unconscious stress and tension which would lock you in an uncomfortable body and make you want to do anything but sing or learn an instrument or travel or take on a new uh, skill. If we can be aware of our body patterns, we can develop new patterns before the impulses to leave, the impatience, the anxiety attacks, the panic attacks, the fear the self-consciousness arises. There has been already significant studies, some of which are controversial. There's a woman named Amy Cuddy who literally claims that by changing the body she could literally change people's personality and lives very quickly. And other researchers said she overblew the research, but they still agreed that there was significant changes and people's level of confidence and ease if they were aware of their bodies and if they knew how to change their postures from the guarded and the locked to the open and spacious.
The key, though, if we're going to do this work, is one, it sounds like the process might be one of, okay, I guess what I'm supposed to do is if I'm locked in this tight state, I should just open up my shoulders, look up, make eye contact, and just relax. That's actually not the way we go about somatic work. The first thing is we have to feel into the body as it is, and we have to understand and connect with some of the old associations that are attached to the constricted, contracted, locked-in, tight, defensive body. If we simply try to move from this, you know, into this, it's just willpower. It's not healing anything. It's simply telling the inner child that's been, you know, shamed, abused, abandoned, that got into the state, we're saying to that inner child that's still there in our bodies and in our unconscious mind, we're saying, okay, go away, I'm just going to put you into this now. And it's not, it's not going to last. We'll go back. We'll constrict again. The key is first to integrate the feelings and the memories that are held in this position before we do any work slowly breathing into and relaxing. So one of the work I do when I do notice that somebody has like their shoulders locked when they're talking about something like dating or work or family relationships, when I see they go into this contracted shoulders, this locked jaw, this suddenly hunched over looking down, then what I say is, okay, let's stop for a moment and let's explore what, when you're in this, what comes to mind? What, what do you feel? What, what's there? Free associate. Tell me what you're feeling right now. And so I'm pulling away from the story and I'm bringing them back into this body that's contracted and I'm asking them to say just whatever comes to mind. And sometimes I'll find that they'll start saying, well... You know, oddly enough, when I'm in this position, the first thing that comes to mind is being a kid in school and having the other kids laugh at me and not feeling accepted. And so when we become aware of those feelings that are locked in that body and we accept them and we don't say, go away, you're not okay, we actually embrace those feelings and then we say, okay, with your permission, we're going to work now. We're going to work now. You're not around abusive people anymore. We're going to keep you around safe people. You're safe with me. And now let's see if we can slowly begin at a rate that you feel comfortable relaxing, changing the way we hold our body. So when it's... This, is, this kind of work you don't do, by the way, in an actual social situation. You'll look kind of strange if you're in this state and you're free associating with people about early childhood experiences. That's what you generally do and you can do in your practice or you can do in a therapeutic environment or you could just do it and report what you find out to someone who's empathetic. But when you're in a social situation where you feel triggered, the first thing to do is to orient, which is to take a look around you and to notice that you're safe, that you're not anymore in childhood, that you're not anymore 
in a environment where everybody will turn against you. And it sounds like we should know that, but actually the right hemisphere can be triggered and put us into these states of hypervigilance, and we really won't know that we're safe until we look around and orient to the environment. It takes about 30 seconds, but doing it very often can deactivate. The key with orienting is not looking at the person who you're talking with, just looking around, taking in the environment. No, oh, okay, I'm here. I'm at Maha Rose. I'm safe. I'm in a good place. The next thing is while you're in a situation to explore the way you're breathing. When we're in an activated state where we don't feel safe and secure, the first thing that will happen, as the Buddha noted, is that the breath will become tight. The out-breaths, the exhalations, will become very clipped and short. So just become aware of your breath, and we'll extend the breath. And that's a way, the breath, the way we're breathing, talks directly to the areas I mentioned, the amygdala, the periaqueductal gray, and it, it informs these areas that set the basic body tone that we're in a safe place. Because nobody would breathe in a long out-breath if they were in a dangerous place. The next, we explore the body areas that are contracted, that get tight. Very often when people go out on dates, they report that their stomach gets really tight or that they, they feel a constriction in the upper body. Some people, when they're in a, at work, they can find themselves in this tightened neck, back of their head. So we just feel into the body, where we're holding all the stress. And before we try to adjust anything, we just relax around it. So don't go into the, the tightness first. Just breathe into the areas around where the tightness is. Then slowly, slowly, without any force, just relax, breathe into, soften. And then finally, it's the actual behaviors, the way we move our bodies. If it's possible when we're in uh, triggering situations to instead of getting in this, you know, this place, to get into a place where we gently lean a little forward, we, without the anxious clinging, we keep the shoulders relaxed and just lean into. That creates a feeling of confidence, a feeling of engagement, a feeling of... Uh, it tells us unconsciously that we're not about to be attacked or abandoned or ridiculed or shamed. And it's really interesting. In some work, there's a lot of... In somatic work, a lot of therapists report how just these subtle shifts can have profound changes in the way we interact with people the kinds of thoughts we think. If the body's relaxed, the mind is far less likely to be obsessive and self-conscious. A lot of people drink to essentially relax their bodies. And in fact, a lot of um, the benzodiazepines that people rely on to relax and not have anxiety in their life simply relax the body. Valium primarily is a muscle relaxant. 
you know, we like to think that benzos primarily work with uh, uh, the brain or the mind, but actually they largely, their efficacy is largely in that they simply relax the body. So, so many of the tools that we rely on, alcohol, uh, benzodiazepines, uh, that are meant to make us feel more relaxed, we can actually do that ourselves if we practice. We don't need to necessarily rely. I'm not judging these alcohol or benzos. I'm simply saying that it's actually something that we can learn to do ourselves. So let's give it a shot, okay? Find a really comfortable seated position Before you close your eyes, if you'd like, take a moment and let's do the orienting where we just see that there's a lot of space around us, that nobody here is particularly judging, criticizing, evaluating us, that we're in a pretty safe space, lots of room above our heads, my ceiling fan, bunch of nice friendly people good so that's just a little bit of orienting which is and then close your eyes and just relax your body into the space around you so knowing that there's a lot of space in front just soften allow yourself to know that there's no impediments in front there's no impediments directly behind you there's no nothing even remotely, directly above your head. The ground beneath you is very firm and reliable, so you can just allow your body to sink into it. So as always, the Buddha, with the Kayagatasati body awareness, he always started with the breath. That's the portal not only into body awareness, but with the present moment. You don't have to start with the breath if it's uncomfortable for you, but if you'd like to find an area in your body where the breath is most apparent, Could be the tip of the nose, the feeling of air. Many people feel the breath most clearly in the expansion and contraction of the chest cavity. Some people feel it in the belly or the movement of breathing which starts in the belly and then moves up perhaps to the chest and then as the body relaxes moves from the chest down to the belly with the exhalation <laughs> 
with some people there might be a kind of expansion with the top of the body with the in breath where the head gently tilts up and back and then with the out breath there's a gentle moving forward of the back of the head and muscle groups So when we are practicing body awareness, there's no judgment. There's no sense of how the body should feel. You're just connecting with the actual sensations and try to put aside any reliance on images or visuals. If they're there, just let them be there, but don't. Try to... devote your attention to the actual sensations, the physical sensations of the body and the breath. If it's difficult to stay with the breath, that's okay. Just count inhalations and exhalations. So one, perhaps on the in-breath, and two on the out, three in the next in-breath, four in the next out-breath. When you reach five, You could start counting back down, four on the out, three on the in, two on the out. But of course, you, that's an arbitrary number. You could count up to seven or nine.
If you'd like to settle the mind, you can extend the length of the out-breaths. If you'd like to put more energy in the mind, after you inhale, hold the in-breath for several beats longer before you breathe out. If you find your mind drifts away, that's all right. It's important to just be patient, to add no criticism or judgment, to just gently bring awareness back. Just cultivating a sense of ease and appreciation in your practice. If there's anything to put aside first, it's put aside any temptation to criticize yourself or judge yourself.
So at this point, if you like, you can just allow the breath to recede into the background of awareness, just reorienting back into this wider array of sensations, the sound of the fan. You can have, if you want, a mental image of the room around you, feeling of the ground and clothes. And now for the purposes of this insight practice, I'd like you to bring to mind any kind of social situation or interpersonal engagement that brings up either constant unease or dread and discomfort. For some people it could be dating, it could be the job interview, it could be family interactions, it could be being in a conversation that's unpleasant with a roommate or a work colleague. See if you can bring to mind the visual image of this reliably unpleasant, difficult, challenging engagement. And we're doing this for a reason. Just first visualize it. Allow the mind to create an image a slight little memory of an actual event, if that's helpful. The goal of this practice is to see if you can start to feel even the subtle contractions, tensions that start to happen when we go into difficult interpersonal situations. For some of us, it might be just a slight, ever so slight tightness in the belly. It might be shoulders locking, jaw grinding, forehead coming tighter, the chest feeling numb or tense. If you can't feel even the slightest inclination towards what we might call a defended physical state, see if you can visualize something else. The purpose is we're trying to just feel some of that inclination to go into that different body For some, it might be just a very hard, impassive expression on the face and a kind of rigid posture.
So if you can find even the slightest contraction, just feel into it wherever it is. Shoulders, throat, face, chest, belly, back of the neck, forehead, around the eyes. And just ask what this feeling, the state of being wants you to know. Obviously it doesn't feel in these situations comfortable or safe. And over time you might find if you give it enough attention, old memories associated with this body state will rise from the past. For this meditation, you just might be aware of a subtle shift in mood as the body, if your body goes into a slightly different state than the mood or even just the way the entire body feels might subtly shift. Whether or not any memories or associations can be summoned, just know that this body represents at least partially experiences from the most buried, forgotten experiences of early life that still remain. And to treat it with kindness Just soften around, breathing into the muscles around the body that are not directly involved. Just keeping the body as relaxed as you can, even if the stomach feels tight. And then finally, as if you're speaking to a, a child that you care about, just tell yourself that you're very, very gently, very slowly going to relax. breathe into, soften. So while you hold the still triggering image, or you might switch to an even more triggering image that's uncomfortable of a social situation that's dreaded, 
while you hold the dreaded image, see if you can slowly breathe into whether it's the stomach or the chest or the muscles and shoulders and throat and face. Breathing into any areas of the body that are impatient, that want to move. So holding the triggering image in your mind, but see if you can cultivate a relaxed body. This is a variation of the exact process we would do if we were actually there in that setting. If we were at that job interview, that family gathering, that uncomfortable social event, how we would breathe into, relax, soften, release, the unlock the jaw, slowly, slowly breathe into the shoulders and release. With the in-breath, open up the chest and make it expansive. With the out-breath, soften the belly, soften the muscles around the body. <laughs> 